I just saw someone walk by with french fries with fluff and caramel sauce on top. Fluff dessert poutine. Uh, Cynthia, where on earth are you? Just down the street from my house in Union Square in Somerville at the What the Fluff Festival. That's right. It is a festival dedicated entirely to marshmallow fluff. Because, of course. See, my response would be, because why? Well, it is the 100th anniversary of the invention of fluff and why Somerville, it was invented here. So surprise. Oh, well, now I understand. Not... Cynthia, I think we're going to have to do a bit more explaining. And that is just what we're going to do this episode. You're listening to Gastropod, the podcast that looks at food through the lens of science and history. I'm Cynthia Graber. And I'm Nicola Twilley. And this episode, we are all about fluff. Like... What the hell is it? And what does it have to do with the advent of high-tech innovations such as egg beaters and the radio, as well as the rise of domestic science? And not to sound like a broken record here, but I'd also like to know, what the hell is a fluffer nutter? This episode is a real journey of discovery for me. But first, Talenti. When Talenti makes gelato and sorbetto, they tend to get a little overzealous. Did they need to use so many raspberries in their Roman raspberry sorbetto that the machine broke? Did they have to try 25 different varieties of chai to find the perfect spice blend for their vanilla chai gelato? Did they need to invent giant mint steepers to make their Mediterranean mint super minty? Does their obsessiveness make Talenti gelato and sorbetto the greatest? You be the judge. They're also the judge. Talenti, the delicious is in the details. Our guide to the magical world of fluff this episode is going to be Mimi Graney. She literally wrote the book on the stuff. It's called Fluff, the Sticky Sweet Story of an American Icon. But really, I'm serious. What is fluff? So it's just whipped egg whites and corn syrup and sugar. It's spreadable marshmallows, basically. But that leads to another question. What really is a marshmallow? Originally, a marshmallow was something made from mallow plants, which grow in marshes and other damp areas. The stem of the mallow plant is the part that you use. I think of it as a little bit like okra that's very sort of slippery and gooey that way. And it had been used medicinally for sore throats and for sort of dryness. We don't know exactly when humans started using mallow plants, but it's at least 4,000 years ago. Early on, it had been sort of food for the gods by the Egyptians then was mixed with sugar and used for sore throats and lozenges and, and kind of gooey things to make you feel better. But then eventually uh, the apothecaries who were making the mallow treats started realizing these actually kind of taste delicious if you put enough sugar with them. And they started creating marshmallows with egg whites instead um, and creating them as treats. In fact, in the 1800s, French confectioners gave up on the idea of medicinal benefits altogether and replaced the mallow sap with gelatin instead. Why bother with the plant? The new confection is delicious. The gelatin helped marshmallows hold their shape, and confectioners added a dusting of cornstarch or powdered sugar to keep the treats from sticking to everything else. And these lovely new marshmallow candies were popular. Super popular especially in Boston. Let's take a step back in my current hometown. Back 100 years or so, Boston was the Silicon Valley of candy making. Okay. Why? First, because of sugar. Boston was one of the centers of the sugar trade with the Caribbean. Granulated sugar was invented in Boston. Before the invention of granulated sugar, refined sugar had to be sold in solid chunks. You used a special tool called a sugar nipper to break off what you needed, and then you grated it or ground it to cook with. The East Boston Sugar Refinery figured out that if you raked the freshly refined sugar on a giant steam table, you could dry it and separate it into individual crystals. 
a huge leap forward for sugar and sugar fiends everywhere. Another reason Boston was so central to candy making was the temperature here. It's cool, so it was easier to make chocolate. In 1764, the first commercial production of chocolate in America began here. Boston was also the center of the ice trade. All of this made it easier to deal with the stickiness of the business. And so Boston was the center of candy making nationally. You get treats such as the Charleston Chew, the Mary Jane Bar, I've had plenty of those, and the Squirrel Nut Zipper, which I've never heard of. But with a name like that, you know it had to have been good. Plus, don't forget the Necco wafer, a.k.a. the most disappointing sweet I've ever tasted. It's like sugar paste and cardboard. Don't tell Bostonians the Necco factory is still a landmark here in Cambridge. Sorry, but it's true. But it's not just the weather, the ice, and the sugar that made Boston a hub for confectionery innovation. There's also disruptive technology like the egg beater. This is hard to believe, but the egg beater was a surprisingly late invention. Mimi told us that humanity had managed to invent the steam train, color photography, even the machine gun before it got around to the humble egg beater. Maybe that's because the egg beater was something that really women needed. I love seeing some of the really old recipe books back in the day where, you know, it was women trying to, you know, make fluffy recipes for angel food cakes and fluffy cakes that were literally calling for whipping batters for four hours. And they would say helpful things of like, you know, how to deal with, you know, arm strain. (laughs) And they were whipping eggs with things like branches and spoons and knives and fingers and obviously was not so good at aerating. So um, right around the Civil War, tinsmiths started formulating sort of the whisks that we know today. These early designs were the starting point for the Dover Stamping and Manufacturing Company in Cambridge, Massachusetts, down the street. They started thinking about all the gears in the steam engine and how those gears could be intertwined. And they developed the standard hand-cranked egg beater with a handle to turn the gears that then powers the whipping mechanism. The women of America were overjoyed. In her book, Mimi writes that one cookbook author in Chicago declared, as long as there are eggs to beat, give me Dover or give me death. And because of the egg beater, and then later on, once that became powered by first steam and then electricity, all these great recipes that incorporated air became really popular. So when you think of not just marshmallows, but angel food cakes and lemon meringue pies, and it became all the trend. So suddenly whipping air into eggs for marshmallows is amazingly easy. And so, Nikki, as you said, marshmallows became super popular, especially in Boston. But as with any consumer revolution, it's not just about the technology. You need an influencer, too, just to keep with the Silicon Valley speak. And that influencer was Fanny Farmer. And one scholar I read said, Fanny Farmer never met a marshmallow she didn't like. Fanny Farmer is a Bostonian, too, and she wrote a groundbreaking cookbook called The Boston Cooking School Cookbook. For generations of Americans, it was the cooking Bible. Fanny Farmer was part of that vanguard of women who are really looking at how to look at the science of food. So um, Fanny Farmer was foremost a culinary educator, and she worked for the Boston Cooking School. And She approached it with great academic prowess. So, for example, she was teaching organic chemistry at at Harvard when women weren't allowed to even be students there. And so talking about that aspect of food science and was educating women who were running major institutions, hospitals, schools, hotels, running the food programs. And like Mimi said, 
Fanny Farmer had something of a sweet tooth. She would put sugar and marshmallow creams into almost everything. Like if you even just look at her salad dressings, they're like crazy sweet. So she was the first person that appreciated, she called it initially marshmallow paste. And in her version, she would actually take marshmallows and melt them down. And that would be a quick frosting or a quick thing to create the marshmallow toast. It was basically a saltine cracker with a marshmallow cream and a cherry on top. And that was dessert. This is the very first recipe with marshmallow fluff, or as Fanny Farmer called it, marshmallow paste, which doesn't sound nearly as appealing. Then it got renamed as marshmallow cream. And because of her role writing these great cookbooks that became heirlooms, in, uh, especially for New England cooks, and because she was teaching so many women, both for major institutions, folks that became educators themselves, um, she was a major tastemaker, really passed her love of marshmallow cream and all things sweet onto New Englanders. Like Mimi said, at First, Fanny melted marshmallows to arrive at her paste or cream. But soon, Bostonians were competing to develop recipes to make marshmallow cream from scratch. Marshmallow creams is closer to a meringue rather than like a marshmallow itself, so they're, they're kind of slightly different. You can make marshmallow cream without gelatin. You need more of a firming agent to make the actual formed marshmallows. A bunch of companies, and not just in Boston, they all hopped on the marshmallow cream bandwagon. There was the Marshmallow Whip from Whitman's. There was May's Marshmallow Cream, which promised in its advertising that it had none of the fishy taste and odor of other emulsions. Siblings Emma and Amory Curtis in Melrose, a suburb of Boston, they created Snowflake Marshmallow Cream. And by the way, they were also the great-great-great-grandchildren of Paul Revere. But the next hero of our story is really the awesomely named Archibald Query. He is the inventor of marshmallow fluff. He uh, was born in Canada, um, around Quebec, and moved to Franklin, Massachusetts when he was about seven with his family and became a young candy man. The secret of Archibald Query's recipe is how does this froth able to hold its shape for so long? Archibald lived right near where I live now in Somerville, and he made confections in his home. He sold small batches of them to local stores and also door-to-door, which sounds lovely. But then other companies got bigger than his, and new requirements for federal income tax for small businesses just made it too hard for him to keep going solo. And then along come two childhood friends from the North Shore, just outside of Boston, Fred Mower and Alan Durkee. So they were two friends. Um, they had been, you know, schoolyard chums in Swampscott, Massachusetts, and they had both served together and cemented their friendship from serving in the foxholds of France during World War One. When they got back from the war, they were looking to make their fortunes. And as it happens, Fred was working alongside Archibald in his day job in a chocolate factory. And um, most likely Archibald told him about this recipe that he had lying around. So Alan and Fred decided to open a company together. They bought the recipe from Archibald. They paid Archibald 500 bucks for his marshmallow fluff recipe. That's about $6,000 in today's money. Still not a huge amount. There probably was some resentment among his family that maybe he should have sold his awesome recipe for more than 500 bucks. But he lived a really happy life. Alan and Fred launched their new company, the Durkee Mower Company, on Valentine's Day 1920. And their star product, actually their only product, was fluff. They first called their new product Toot Sweet Marshmallow Fluff because they served in France together. But luckily they dropped the Toot Sweet pretty quickly. The local paper wrote about the, quote, new firm in town and how these two hometown boys are back from the war and ready to fight their way into the business world. Their friends apparently were convinced they'd succeed. And they did. All thanks to Archibald's recipe. 
After a decade, Alan and Fred did branch out and buy a chocolate milk company. The biggest they ever got in terms of product line was two. Um, and then eventually they closed down the chocolate milk company and just stuck on fluff as their only product. So the recipe they bought from Archibald, the competitive advantage he sold them, was that his fluff held its shape much longer than the other creams. But why? What was the secret? Archibald Cray came up with this recipe 100 years ago, so it, it's no high tech. It seems like it's a space age food, but there's nothing all that space age about it. It's more of a steampunk type of thing. And the, the secret is held with turkey mower. And it's still a secret today. But the secret does not lie in the ingredients. Those are really simple. Egg white, sugar, corn syrup, and vanilla. Mimi suspects the secret is in the process, the temperatures and the timings. A lot of companies will change the gauges on their uh, equipment so you don't know what the temperature is, you don't know how long they whip it for. So the even the workers who work at Durkee Mower, they just press a button and the uh, machines go for a certain amount of time. They don't, unless they timed it themselves, I, they could probably figure that out. But the room is kept at a certain humidity, a certain temperature. So I've you in of some of the secrets, but um, I don't know what those calibrations quite are. We will never know. One thing that's mostly not a secret, the flavors. Jerky Mower has played with a few different flavors over the years. So while Jerky Mower makes a strawberry fluff, and for a period they made a raspberry fluff, and there is a very secret caramel-flavored fluff only available in Europe, um, you will never see a chocolate fluff. Why no chocolate fluff? The answer is in cooking science. Anybody who's made a, a meringue at home has followed the recipe meticulously where they talk about making sure you have a fat-free environment for whipping the eggs. So uh, oftentimes the recipe will call for even using vinegar on paper towel to wipe it out because the oil that might be left on the utensils will denature or break down the the bubbles so um, if you think of cocoa butter that's in chocolate will basically flatten your meringue so it will flatten your marshmallow cream so no chocolate fluff archibald secret endures and Durkee mower's one and only product does end up making fred and alan's fortune next after the break how fluff got big clue It involves singing, dancing, and peanut butter. But first, we want to tell you about a couple of our sponsors this episode. HelloFresh is on a mission to save home cooking because it's just too good to go away. If they could do the dishes for you, they would, but their number one priority is to get you cooking. Each week, HelloFresh creates new delicious recipes with step-by-step instructions designed to take around 30 minutes for everyone from novices to seasoned home cooks short on time. HelloFresh sources the freshest ingredients measured to the exact quantities needed so there's no food waste. And HelloFresh is now offering light fall meals and has just introduced breakfast options. Breakfast is my favorite meal. I love it so much that we devoted an entire episode to it. Our fifth one ever, I think. And in that episode, we talked to historian Abigail Carroll about when the breakfast foods Americans know and love today, the waffles, the scrambled eggs, the bacon and hash browns, when they were invented. What she told us was pretty distressing. It turns out that early colonial Americans did not subscribe to the idea of special breakfast foods at all. They ate cold leftovers, whatever was on hand, likely washed down by beer. You'll have to listen to the episode to find out when that all changed. But those early colonists couldn't have even dreamed of the convenience of HelloFresh, which delivers food to your doorstep and a recyclable, insulated box for free. Get cooking with delicious ingredients you'll love to eat and simple recipes you'll love to cook for less than $10 
$10 a meal. And for $30 off your first week of deliveries, visit HelloFresh.com and enter Gastropod30 when you subscribe. That's Gastropod30 at checkout. This episode is also brought to you in part by Spice Islands. For noticeably richer flavors in your recipes, opt for premium spices from Spice Islands. By sun-drying many of their spices and de-stemming their chili peppers by hand, Spice Islands uses a craft approach to deliver the most authentic and intense flavor possible. They also take the extra steps to ensure even richer flavors, like waiting for their dill weed to bloom before harvesting, or milling their garlic to a true powder so it doesn't add grittiness to your dishes. Better yet, they maintain a strict standard for each item to ensure consistency, quality, and flavor. Visit spiceislands.com gastropod for delicious recipes, including one for spiced maple carrots, a quick, simple side to complement any meal. Spiceislands.com gastropod is also filled with delicious spice facts. For example, their recent story about rosemary. I have to say, I did not know that the name rosemary comes from the Latin meaning dew of the sea, or that during the Middle Ages, brides, grooms, and guests each wore a headpiece or sprig of rosemary during the wedding ceremony. Like Ophelia says in Hamlet, rosemary is for remembrance, so it was thought to contribute to the happy couple's future fidelity. So whether you're looking for flavor adventure or simply better tasting meals, fill your pantry with Spice Islands and taste the difference in every bottle. That's spiceislands.com slash gastropod and pick up Spice Island spices in the premium spice section of your local retailers. And finally, I want to tell you about a podcast that you should all check out. It's called The Backstory, and it's made by one of my good friends from university, so I'm obviously biased. But Claire is a really talented documentary maker, and with her co-host Susie Coulson, she's made a really powerful podcast that tells people's personal stories, the secrets they kept too long, the moments when everything changed. It's brand new, so go check it out before it hits the big time so you can say you knew about it first. Look for The Backstory Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. That's thebackstorypodcast.co.uk. Now back to Fluff. We already talked about one woman, Fanny Farmer, who helped make Fluff popular in New England. And now it's time to introduce the second key woman in this story. Marjorie Mills, I I feel like I always want to wear a feathered hat when I talk to her because she was famous for wearing these very flamboyant hats. So um, she was the first uh, female reporter for the Boston Herald Traveler, which now folks know as the Boston Herald, which was one of the major newspapers in Boston back in the day and, and has continued on till today. And she became the editor of what was known at that time as the women's pages. And she was really well known as just being really personable and got to know everybody in Boston. So she was writing the gossip column, writing recipes, talking about restaurants that were opening, giving advice about you know shortcuts for your own recipes. And because she was a leader in media in Boston, was called upon as radio developed in Boston in the 1920s. Just like Fanny Farmer's marshmallow boosting was assisted by a technological leap forward in egg beating, Marjorie Mills got on the fluff train just as radio was picking up. So she initially was a guest on shows and then came to be a host of her own all the way until like the 70s. I uh, think of her as a little bit like an early Martha Stewart because she was a woman in the media and personable and connected with a lot of people. She was um, called upon to endorse a lot of products. So she endorsed everything from um, Nestle's chocolate to King Arthur flour and famously marshmallow fluff. And she became a close friend of Durkee Mower. Every year, Fred and Alan would recognize the anniversary of their company and a number of those anniversaries where they would cut a cake. There's Marjorie Mills and her hat in the back beaming away. 
jerky mower launched their product in 1920. And you know what else happened in 1920? KDKA Pittsburgh became the first radio station to receive a commercial license from the government. So jerky mower were part of the, the very first ones of trying out this new medium. Jerky mower was advertising in print mediums, but they realized they could so much more effectively spread the word and much more cheaply through radio. Alan Durkee had actually been a radio operator in World War One, so he was a little familiar with the medium. And their ad man was Carl Frost, who had served in the Coast Guard, which radio initially was mostly tied with, obviously, ships. So Marjorie Mills is pimping fluff on air, but she's not alone. Meet the Flufferettes. So in the early days of the uh, radio, because it was non-commercial, they couldn't do a straight commercial. So the performers would be named after the products that were being sponsored for that 15-minute block of programming or so. So for Dricky Mower, their um, band was known as the Flufferettes. And even after radio went commercial um, and they could do a legitimate ad on the air, the Flufferettes continued to be the highlight of their 15-minute show. And they continued all the way into the very beginning of TV, so all the way into the early 1950s with their radio programming. The Flufferettes became an institution and lasted for decades, but obviously the lineup changed. So they had um, a number of different performers took on the name of the Flufferettes over the years. Some of those performers came to be big names, like Joe Rines and uh, Horace Height. So folks might know the song, the Hut Tut song. Hut Tut Rolls which was had such an earworm was known as a national disease and it became popular folks have seen the christmas story um uh, movie the hut tut song is in that the father is singing it maniacally over the years the turkey mower would have just sort of lots of different songs they did try doing um uh, a radio drama at one time and spent a huge amount of money for this radio drama. So they invested, I think it was like a million dollars in radio advertising that year. It was it was epic. They sponsored the Ed Sullivan Show when it was on the radio. They sponsored live coverage of the Red Sox and the Boston Braves. These were big deal advertising buys. But as Jerky Mower raised their profile around the U.S., they were also being threatened by Kraft. So some of their, their push in the early 1950s got the attention of other national competitors. There were other small marshmallow creams around the country. Kraft Foods was the ones that really sort of look at how can we take down these young upstarts and could buy them out. So Kraft was buying out other small marshmallow cream companies around the country, shutting them down and taking their market share. Kraft had even launched their own marshmallow cream in 1957, although their process was different. They used a slightly different method that made for a more uniform product, but one that didn't hold its shape as well. Archibald's secret technique still had the edge there. Kraft wanted to take over Jerky Mower, too. At the time, Fred had just passed away, and there was no way they were going to say no to this company that they had built. Alan and the rest of the team weren't about to sell Fred's legacy out. But then how could they compete with such a massive corporate behemoth? They came up with a secret weapon, the Fluffernutter. Just to be clear, for people like me who've managed to remain ignorant of this iconic New England culinary delight until just now, a Fluffernutter is simply a peanut butter and fluff sandwich. For a long time, the pairing of marshmallow and peanut butter sandwiches had been promoted. And then Kraft came out with these full-page ads and magazines promoting this type of sandwich. But it was the genius of the advertising team at Jerky Mower who called it the fluffernutter, and it sort of felt like 
I, mic drop at that one because you can't make a sandwich with marshmallow cream and peanut butter and not call it a fluffernutter. So it really claimed the name as their own. At the same time as Jerky Mower came up with the fluffernutter, radio and TV were finally allowed to air real commercials. Jerky Mower hired Richard Manoff, who actually founded the first Jewish-owned advertising agency on Madison Avenue. And I think of he's just like Don Draper, where literally he was working on the Lucky Strike campaign um, and was kind of, I think he's most famous now for coming up with really good jingles. So for example, he did the um, the bumblebee tuna fish ad. So folks might know the, yo, yum, yum, bumblebee, bumblebee tuna. That came out of his campaign. I am, I'm very familiar with that. <laughs> and they also were the ones that came up with the fluffernutter jingle. Oh, you need fluff, fluff, fluff. And obviously you can't use any other company's product for it. It's not a marshmallow cream nutter. It's a fluffer nutter. Like the jingle says, you need fluff, fluff, fluff to make a fluffer nutter. But like Mimi said, the peanut butter and marshmallow cream combo had been around for a while. In fact, remember Emma and Amory Curtis, the great, great, great grandkids of Paul Revere? Emma is actually the genius behind the first documented pairing of marshmallow cream and peanut butter in a 1914 recipe. At first, she called for them to be layered together on a cracker, but a couple of years later, she switched to bread and christened her creation the Liberty Sandwich. Nobody knows quite why she called it the Liberty Sandwich. Maybe because of Paul Revere, maybe because eating peanut butter during World War I meant more meat would be freed up for the soldiers. In any case, the name Liberty Sandwich was not nearly as catchy as the fluffernutter. And the fluffernutter is what saved Dirky Mower's bacon, if that's not too much of an Elvis kind of combination. Yeah, I think if uh, marshmallow cream and fluff didn't hide in its partnership with peanut butter, it would not have been saved. Fluff and the fluffernutter became so famous in America that they show up in some rather unlikely places in pop culture. There's this pop song from the 1970s called Love You by the Free Design. I love forget-me-nots, fluffernutter sugar pops. And then there's a slightly less sunshiny appearance in the ultimate mafia tragedy. My favorite one is the one from The Sopranos because I feel like it really captures fluff in, in all its complexity. So that was a, a scene where you know, one of the lieutenants in the mafia has just killed the man who he believes killed his father and it, thinking of his lost childhood from losing his dad as a, at a, such a young age. So he goes to visit his mother and he's in the kitchen with his mom and isn't going to tell her what he just did, but asks her for a fluff or nutter. Hey, Mom. What the hell are you doing here? You scared me to death. Just stop by, see how you're getting along. You ever do anything like a normal person? There is a belt. So how you been? Fine. Actually, I was hoping you'd make me one of your fluffernutters. And she can't make it for him. She doesn't have the ingredients, which symbolizes everything about his loss of innocence and how he can never regain that simple happiness. And then there's what's probably Jerky Mower's least favorite pop culture appearance of fluff. So on the Howard Stern show, because he's renowned for all kinds of antics, some man's dying wish was that he wanted to wrestle a naked woman in a pool of fluff. And so they had contacted Jerky Mower to get a large supply. Uh, Jerky Mower respectfully declined. 
But Howard Stern's producers managed to so inventively go to the store and buy their own couple containers of fluff. And apparently it was um, spread on a stripper's body and the man was able to lick it off her body. The pinnacle of Americanness in all its glory right there. Yes. But despite all that exposure, fluff has remained a really geographically focused product. Most of the fluff is sold here in New England. Seriously, more than 50% of all fluff is sold in New York and New England. We are the obsessed one. I sort of think of it about the same way, you know, Australians are love their Vegemite and, you know, the Scots love their haggis. Like other people maybe eat it, but not with the same enthusiasm as we do in New England. I live in New England, but I didn't grow up here. So, Nikki, neither of us had ever tried a fluffernutter before. Which up till now, I'd not seen as a problem. But there was no making this episode without getting our teeth coated in the sweet stuff. We planned a tasting for right before our live show this year at the Boston Museum of Science. So, hey, Cynthia, am I going to bust out the fluffernutter? Ingredients you're recording? Now I am. Okay. We're good. So it's time for fluff. It's time for fluff. We were hiding downstairs in an office. It was the two of us, the staff from the Museum of Science, Lisa Monroe and James Wetzel, my mom who'd come up for the show, my partner Tim, who was maybe even more excited about the fluffer nutter than our live show. You've got the fluff. You've got the fluff. And of course, our lucky live show on stage guests, Deborah Blum, Carla Martin, and Lisbeth and Chris Crowley. So Chris, did you eat this when you were a kid? Oh, yeah, I know them. And when I was a kid, I used to do, I remembered, peanut butter and jelly and fluff. I did the trifecta. And it's delicious. I mean, I just love it. Wait, you had jelly and fluff and, pe- and, and peanut it, butter? And occasionally bacon in there, too. No. I'm serious. Really? And he's still alive. <laughs> this is amazing. Not that healthy, but... Some people had fond childhood memories of fluffernutters. The New Englanders, basically. But for some of us, this was going to be a new experience. I am Cynthia's mother, and I never heard of a fluffernutter. And she never had it, because it was not in my home. I have never had it. I didn't even know what it was. And I don't like peanut butter, so therefore it's kind of useless. I don't even know what to expect. Nikki has never had fluff before. I'm about about to lose the fluff virginity right here and now. And then the tasting commenced. Cynthia has a rather unpleasant look on her face. No. It's too sweet for me for a sandwich. To me, I would take the jelly over the fluff if I was pairing with peanut butter. Sorry. I hate to disappoint. It's okay. It's okay. Me too. You know I love you. But this might be a stretch. This might be testing things. I'm now testing our relationship here, apparently. Deal breaker. All I can say is more for me. So Cynthia and I... Yeah, not really Fluffernutter fans. But Deborah Blum, so she was reluctant at first. Actually, this isn't bad. Right? I think the salt of the peanut butter cuts the sweet of the fluff. Man, I sound like a complete restaurant critic here. And uh, I think it's pretty good. But Nikki, you and I are not alone. Not everybody thinks the Fluffernutter is so awesome. In fact, about a decade ago, there was a Fluffernutter debacle in the Massachusetts state legislature. The media called it a kerfluffle, of course. My state representative at the time was a guy named Jarrett Barrios, and he was pretty great. He was really progressive, and he wasn't a big fan of junk food in schools. So there was a a junk food bill, and at that time, uh, Senator Barrios' son reported that he was eating fluffernutters every single day 
at school. Now, it wasn't because it was officially part of the meal program, but it was sort of the standard. If you didn't like the sloppy joe today, you can have a fluffernutter. If you don't like, you know, the chicken fingers, you can have a fluffernutter. And the lunch ladies really liked it because they're shelf-stable products. The kids will eat it. There's some nutrition in that peanut butter. Done. Um, so Jared Barrios thought this was rather excessive, especially because his son was not allowed to eat fluffernutters at home. And so reasonably said, Massachusetts schools can only serve fluffernutters once a week. And you would swear this man had literally taken candy from a baby. There were actually death threats to his office. He became a laughingstock worldwide. Really, Jarrett might as well have declared war on Christmas. Another state rep, Representative Kathy Reinstein, raced to the fluffernutter's defense with a bill that would make the fluffernutter the state sandwich. So actually within a year, Senator Barrios resigned from the Senate and left sort of elected office. I don't know if it was directly attributed to it, but um, it was a really damaging thing to his career and made him a laughing stock, even though it was an incredibly reasonable thing to do. Sorry, Jarrett. Miss you. But back at the same time in 2006, Mimi had her own ideas about fluff. He doesn't quite believe me, I don't think, but I had already come up with a festival before the Fluffernutter bill came in, but it was very good for my publicity, <laughs> as you can imagine. And um, I jokingly, for that first festival, um, challenged him, uh, Senator Berrios, for his anti-Fluffernutter bill, and Representative Reinstein with her fluff as a state sandwich to a duel with a tug of war over a pool of fluff, which neither of which showed up, which I wasn't all that surprised with. But I did have a pool of fluff and a tug of war rope. So it became a neighborhood tug of war, which was the highlight of the, the event. That's right. As well as having written the book on fluff, Mimi Graney is the founder of What the Fluff? the one and only Fluff Festival. So it started in 2006 as part of a whole series of festivals that happened in the neighborhood where we were working to uh, bring economic revitalization to Union Square in Somerville, Massachusetts. Union Square is a tangle of streets that looks a little run down, frankly, if you just drive through it, but it's a pretty awesome little neighborhood, a great combination of immigrant stores and hipster coffee shops. That is, that's what it looks like now. Back then, it was still sort of a work in progress. So that neighborhood, kind of scrappy and gritty, um, had been sort of, we thought of it as the eye of the development storm. A lot of other neighborhoods were being reborn because of transit and, and high tech. And Union Square had a lot of um, local businesses, a lot of immigrants, lots of interesting little food businesses, some makers, but wasn't quite kind of taking off. Um, so that first festival was really meant to be a one-off, but between the uh, Senator Barrios kerfluffle and between people just really embracing it with such rigor, that first year it was really just a lot of people standing around in a parking lot, waiting in line for t-shirts, waiting in line for eat, eating the tuna fluffer, waiting in line to, uh, we had some little science fair things, but people had a great time, culminated with the tug of war over the pool of fluff, and we had um, the flufferettes for the modern age. We brought back the radio thing, but we made them as burlesque girls with great pom-poms and G-rated burlesque girls. And this first What the Fluff Festival was such a hit that Mimi decided to do it again. And again. And again. It's now become a phenomenon. About 10,000 people come every year. It takes over the whole neighborhood. It used to just be a little part of a parking lot, and now they shut down all the streets nearby. And one year, we had such an impact on traffic and all the nearby highways and streets that the state police almost shut us down. But we have now got it down to a science, and everybody knows all things must stop for the What the Fluff Festival every year. Of course, the main activity at the Fluff Festival is eating fluff. 
in pairings that make the Fluffernutter look very reasonable indeed. At the Fluff Festival, we have a, a, a booth called the Fear Factor, where we see what kind of combinations people will consume with fluff. And um, it was inspired because in the very first Fluff Festival, as part of the activities that year, we did a science fair. So my brother showed up calling himself the tuna fluffer and had a couple boxes of saltines, big tubs of tuna fish salad, pickles, mustards, hot sauce, and marshmallow fluff. And you would think it is disgusting, but it is surprisingly delicious. And I thought, well, if people will stand in line to eat that, let's see what other things they'll do. So um, at the festival, you can try it on broccoli and with anchovies and baba ganoush. And some turn out better than others. The great thing about the festival is a lot of the businesses in the neighborhood look at, at incorporating fluff into their uh, recipes and because it's an international neighborhood, people do some great things like fluff pizzas, fluff empanadas, fluff cocktails, um, fluff poutine, and um, I'm always amazed at how uh, surprisingly and wonderful and delicious they are. This year was the hundredth anniversary of the invention of fluff, so there was an epic celebration planned for September. Of course, I went. The day had gotten pretty hot, and it was insanely crowded, and there were long lines for food. A lot of the food was the normal offerings from local restaurants, Venezuelan arepas or Peruvian chicken. But then they'd bust out things like arepas with Nutella and fluff, cocktails made with fluff, pierogi with peanut butter, fluff, and bacon, and bratwurst with a cheese and fluff sauce. Tell me you didn't eat that. No. I love the restaurant. It's called Bronwyn, but the fluff cheese sauce did not sound appealing to me. Still, I wanted to get into the spirit of the event, so my mom and I went over to the Fear Factor station. So I'm a little confused about what's going on here. Oh. What? There, there are these toppings you can put on your fluff. You have a, a cracker. Then you can put spam, tuna, capers, corn, green beans, ginger, and Lucky Charms. There's also chocolate syrup, Tabasco sauce, mustard, salsa, and ketchup, all with fluff. Okay, I have mustard, fluff, and corn, and my mom has salsa, fluff, salsa, and, fluff and corn. It's just a little sweet. Mostly, I feel the salsa and the corn. Really, it, it's it's like a way too sweet salad dressing, kind of. I'm actually not super jealous that I didn't get to try that one. But how about the famous fluff tug of war? I'm picturing a Howard Stern-type situation here with you sliding around in a pool of fluff, except probably not naked, right? Unless I underestimated you. No tug of war, and no, I did not get naked in the middle of Union Square. But I did see a very cute competition where some kids from the audience were chosen to go up on a stage. They had fluff smeared on their faces. The whole point was they had to race to move small, furry, marble-sized balls from one table to another, and they couldn't use their hands. So at one table, they stuck their little fluff-covered noses into bowls to pick up the balls. Then they ran over to the other table and scraped the ball off their nose into another bowl. Back and forth with the fluff as glue, racing to move the balls from one bowl to the other using just their sticky faces. And we have some people winning by the nose. I have no idea who they are. I think the kids had fun because there was fluff smeared all over them, and, of course, they licked it off. So let's hear some big cheers for these amazing fluff athletes! 
People said it couldn't be done, but we did it. We made an entire episode on fluff. But we couldn't have done it without Mimi Graney. Her book is called Fluff, the Sticky Sweet Story of an American Icon. She's also been really central in local Somerville life, which obviously I'm a huge fan of. And thanks to our guinea pigs at the Museum of Science, I cannot think of a nicer group of people to lose my fluff virginity with. We'll be back in two weeks with a scoop, a behind-the-scenes look at one of the biggest stories in food this year. It's same Colosseo, is same Duomo di Milano, is same for you. You are American. Disney World. <laughs> <laughs>